Welcome to BioCentury This Week. I'm Jeff Cranmer, Executive Editor of BioCentury, and today I'm joined by... Karen Tkach-Tusman, Senior Editor. Lauren Martz, Executive Director of Biopharma Intelligence. Steve Austin, Washington Editor. On today's pod, the midterms were nearly done counting the votes, but what does it mean for biotech and what to expect in the next session of Congress? trend spotting at Sitsi and what's on tap in BioCentury's distillery. It's our monthly look at translational trends. All right, Steve, let's jump right to Washington. Uh, the midterms, we know what it will look like in the Senate. We almost know what it will be like in the House. What are you seeing? So, you know, usually we don't talk about when we're recording the, the pod. We kind of let listeners imagine that whenever they're listening to it, it's live and we're just talking to them right then. But we got to say it today. We're recording this. It's Monday, November 14th. It's about one o'clock in the afternoon, East Coast time. So whatever we're saying is true right, right now. You know, who knows? Things could change. It's clear the Democrats have won control of the Senate. I'm assuming that Republicans are going to hang on to the House, probably by the slimmest of margins. But that's not a done deal yet. So for the life sciences, we have to think about the lame duck session. That's now until New Year's Eve and the next Congress. So let's start with the lame duck. The composition of the Congress, you know, hasn't changed. We've got the same people there now as were there um, a week ago and a month ago and three months ago. But the midterm results will have a huge impact on what happens between now and the end of the year. If there had been a red wave, Republicans would have been very reluctant to do anything substantive in the lame duck. They would have preferred to wait until they had power over both houses of Congress. Now it's the opposite. There are things that are essential and are going to be extremely difficult for whoever is the House Speaker to get done next year. So they're going to want to try to get them done this year. Raising the debt ceiling, probably an omnibus budget bill that goes for a year. They're going to try to do those things. That means we're going to have a, a kind of a last gasp at old-fashioned horse trading politics before we turn to something very different next year, more like people shooting each other with spitballs. The only way that anything passes is if there's agreement from what they call the four corners. That's the Democratic and Republican chair and ranking member of the relevant committees in the House and the Senate, and also from the leadership of the two parties in both houses of Congress. That's the only way anything happens in the lame duck session. There's also some personal dimensions. Senator Richard Burr, is retiring this year. He's very close to Mitch McConnell. And I think that McConnell wants to give Burr kind of a final chance to burnish his reputation. So what's all that mean for Biopharma? Burr wants the Valid Act and he wants the Prevent Act. The Valid Act revamps the regulation of diagnostics. Prevent is about pandemic preparedness. He's got Patty Murray, the Health Committee Chairman on board, I think, for both. Representative Frank Pallone, the Chair of the House Energy and Commerce Committee, is lukewarm about those, but he doesn't actually oppose them. I think Kathy McMorris Rogers, the ranking Republican on the Energy and Commerce Committee, is in about the same place. Pallone and Rogers really want some parts of the FDA user fee legislation that passed the House but died in the Senate to get enacted. That includes modest reforms to accelerated approval, some language around clinical trials diversity, a few other things. That means we could see a deal, you know, the Valid Act or maybe parts of the Valid Act. The Prevent Act, or maybe parts of the Prevent Act are passed, and some of those FDA reforms go through 
you know, I think that's a, a distinct possibility. The biopharma industry really wants Congress to roll back a provision in a Trump tax law that's supposed to start next year that would make them write off R&D expenses over five years instead of over one year. There's broad support for rolling this back. And, you know, you can imagine Democrats are, are kind of cool with rolling back anything that Trump wanted by way of tax law. So that could happen. The spending bill could include yet another bump for NIH and maybe more money for ARPA-H. It isn't clear. But anyway, that's a kind of summary high level of some of the things that I think could happen in the um, next two months. And how about the Inflation Reduction Act? That's very much top of mind, especially at Pharma's. Last week, we saw AstraZeneca say it may defer U.S. cancer drug launches in response to the legislation. What are you hearing there, Steve? So nothing's going to happen about the IRA in the lame duck session. I think that's just impossible. And um, honestly, there's not a lot that's going to happen on anything next year. And there's not a lot that's going to happen on the IRA next year. It's possible. The most that could happen would be that the patient advocacy community could lead changes to a couple of provisions in the IRA that are relevant to biopharma. I think that the one that would have the most possibility of being changed is the um, what I call the single orphan exemption. I've written about it. We've talked about it on the pod. It's a provision in the IRA that allows companies to be exempt from price-setting provisions of the IRA if they have one and only one orphan indication. It's possible that rare disease advocates could persuade Congress to open that up to drugs that have only orphan indications, no matter how many orphan indications they have, but that's, that's really not a certainty. Anything else? Look, Bernie Sanders is going to be chair of the HELP committee that has jurisdiction over FDA and most of the life sciences. If Republicans had won control of the Senate, Rand Paul would have been chair of that committee. Neither one of them is interested in finding common ground with the other. <laughs> we don't know whether Paul is going to stay on the committee now or whether he'll jump to Homeland Security. But I think we can be certain that the decades of tradition in which the HELP committee chair and ranking member have worked together to find common ground on FDA and healthcare issues, despite dramatic differences on other political issues, is over, right? Bernie Sanders and whoever's the ranking Republican on the HELP committee are not likely to even try to find common ground on much of anything. So legislation involving FDA or the life sciences that passes next year is going to happen despite the HELP committee, not because of it. And that makes it even harder for things to happen. In the House, Republicans, you know, to be honest, they don't really have a healthcare agenda beyond using their oversight authority to exact revenge on Democrats. So they're going to hold hearings on Wuhan, on the COVID response, on abortion drugs, on gain of function research, on allegations that. The Biden administration is allowing Chinese spies to steal American biotech secrets, but they're not going to use those hearings as preludes to legislation. They're, they're going to be intended to, to make points and put things in the, in the public domain. After that's happened, there's a school of thought that says, well, then Republicans will be amenable to actually getting some things done when they've kind of got those things out of their system. And then if you ask, well, what are the things that could get done? You could see the Pasteur Act or the Disarm Act 
Those are two bills that are aimed at enhancing antimicrobial resistant drug development. You could see those getting passed in part because Frank Pallone, as chair of the Energy and Commerce Committee, was really the stumbling block. There's broad bipartisan support for both of those, but Pallone didn't really want to see them happen. And as a result, they didn't. So maybe we'll see those things happen. Maybe we'll see some other narrow things where there's agreement between the two parties and things get passed. Paw Paw, that's the um, Pandemic All Hazards Preparation Act. I think that's what it stands for. Anyway, the bill that BARDA and other pandemic response parts of the U.S. government operate under, that has to be reauthorized next year. So that, that could happen. But other than that, I think we're really looking at a lot of investigations, a lot of headlines, and not a lot of legislation next year. All right. And you'll be discussing all of this with Tom DeLinge on the BioCentury show on Thursday. Yeah. Yeah. And Tom is the former president of Bio, the biotech innovation organization. He was their head of, of lobbying and advocacy for a long time. Before that, he was their chief counsel. And now he's at flagship pioneering in charge of their public policy efforts. Excellent. So that will be out on Thursday. You can find it on our website, biocentury.com. All right. The Society for Immunotherapy of Cancer just wrapped its annual meeting. Lauren, you are tracking trends at SITSI. What did you see? Yeah, while I was scanning the the SITSI abstracts, what really struck me this year was the expanding complexity of therapeutic platforms that are being applied to immuno-oncology problems. And specifically, a lot of these newer preclinical platforms that were coming out of the abstracts are combining pieces of technologies from different modalities. And this is something that we've started to see a little bit in some of the clinical data over the past year or so. What comes to mind is AFIMED's program that combines their innate cell engager with an NK cell therapy. They're actually conjugating them together before they're delivering them. And you know that adds functionality that you wouldn't necessarily get from using these two things separately because you might have healthier NK cells. You're sort of taking a step away from what needs to happen once you inject these things inside the body because two of the pieces are already attached. There were other platforms that were doing similar things with NK cells. A few companies are applying the same concept to CAR T cells and bispecific T cell engagers. One in particular was actually made CAR T cells that secrete the engager, which it probably is a complex manufacturing process, but it, it doesn't involve creating the two things completely separately. So it might have some advantage. And then you'd expect that maybe they would find each other quickly. If you know the cell is secreting it, it, it may quickly bind to it. Another trend that we saw was oncolytic viruses. This is a modality that's been around forever. That's sort of seen a few successes and a lot of failures. And since the beginning of immuno-oncology, we, we've started to see checkpoint inhibitors combined with oncolytic viruses. And at SISI this year, I think the therapeutic structures were a little bit more complex and a little more interesting. So one group was infecting CAR T cells with the oncolytic virus before treating patients. And there was another one that delivers an oncolytic virus to solid tumors that expresses CD19. So when you use that with the approved CAR T cells against CD19, you can direct them 
towards solid tumors. You know, these are CAR T cells that are used for hematologic malignancies. Uh, and there are, there are quite a few other um, pairings that you can read about in the story that is online. Lauren, I remember the days when people were bemoaning how everyone was just sort of combining checkpoint inhibitors with everything, and it was like throwing spaghetti against the wall. I'm curious how you look at the types of combinations we're seeing now. Does it feel like spaghetti against the wall? Does it seem like there's some underlying veins that have perhaps more evidence or stronger hypotheses behind them? I think it's hard to tell now because back when we saw all of the checkpoint combinations, there seemed to be rationale for a lot of what people were doing. That wasn't always the case. A lot of these things were just, you know, if we add this to Keytruda, is it, is it going to, you know, make it more effective? But in some cases, it seemed like it was something that should work. And, and unfortunately, it didn't work out that way. But a lot of these combinations, there seems to be, you know, a mechanistic rationale for doing this. So I think we have to see these are preclinical abstracts and, and something that we've unfortunately learned with immuno-oncology is that a lot of this research doesn't translate to the clinic. You know, immune systems are very different in animals than they are in people, and it's hard to tell what's going to work. I, I'm not really sure. All right. Thank you for that, Lauren. Uh, Lauren has a nice piece up on biocentry.com, summing this up. A lot of, lot of name checks, so uh, you'll get to check out which companies are uh, in these abstracts that she's referring to. It's an interesting list to be sure. All right, let's take our monthly look at what's new in the distillery. The distillery is BioCentury's summaries of top translational papers highlighting new targets and technologies with disease-modifying effects. Our website has a handy distillery dashboard, which I'm hearing has some new features. Karen, what can I do today that I couldn't do a month ago? Well, the distillery dashboard, basically what we did is we updated its engine and it is now powered by our BCIQ database. So what does that mean in terms of what you can do? On the dashboard, you'll see we have a leaderboard of all the institutions where the corresponding authors are for the papers in our distillery going back about seven years. And so now uh, you can directly access the institution profiles in BCIQ. For example, let's say you were searching in a specific target space, uh, in a specific geography, you could figure out what investigators have published uh, in your areas of interest, and then you could check out their institution profiles and learn more about how Biocentury has covered their translational activity in the past. And the other piece of it is on our therapeutics tab, you can actually check out target profiles. So this is really handy for if you find a new target in the distillery dashboard, um, you can quickly see what's the context of commercial activity by looking at our BCIQ uh, database page for it. And really excitingly, for articles published since uh, Q2 of this year, you can now filter by patent and licensing status. So see, for example, things that have been declared explicitly available for licensing or where the authors have filed a patent application. Experimental system, so you can check out and say, you know, I only want to look at papers where there was some patient sample data or where they used a certain type of animal model. 
and innovation type. And that's that distinction that features actually rolling out today, where between if you are looking at papers where they identify new biology to target versus a new technology for getting at a target. And in some cases, actually, there are papers that do both. And so you can now filter by all of that. And uh, yeah, I'm excited for people to have more functionality uh, with, you know, looking at our Wayback Machine and seeing who are the investigators working in what disease areas, target areas, geographies of interest. And yeah, hope people enjoy that. All right. Any papers you want to highlight this month? Yeah. You know, there was one that stood out for me from the latest batch. So I've been following, as, as many of us have, the sort of DNA damage response field in cancer. Um, so that's your PARPs and synthetic lethal interactions where you're looking at ways of targeting vulnerabilities in DNA damage response pathways that play a role in fixing mutations in cancer. But this paper actually highlighted a role for the DDR regulator CHIC2 to treat CNS injury by preventing long-term DNA damage signaling, which causes neuronal dysfunction. And so they used Drosophila and rat models of spinal cord crush injury and showed um, some therapeutic effects there for an antisense compound, a tool CHIC2 inhibitor, and also for the CHIC1-2 inhibitor, Prexacertib, which is now called ACR368. And uh, that's a compound that's in Acrovon Therapeutics' pipeline. It's in phase two testing for very solid tumors. And the investigators here who are based out of University of Birmingham in the UK, they're looking to see if they can start phase two trials to test the compound in spinal and ophthalmic injury. And they have filed a patent application and indicated that the technology is available for licensing. Okay, thanks for that. Karen, do check out the distillery dashboard. It is pretty sweet. Thanks for tuning in. All of BioCentury's podcasts are available on Spotify, Stitcher, Apple, and Google. Kendall Square Orchestra provides the music for our podcast. The group connects science and technology professionals and other members of the greater Boston community to collaborate, innovate, and inspire through music while supporting causes related to healthcare and education.